0: There's a lot of reasons why I made the choice to not make transphobia part of the characters' journeys and to write to see. But right now, the reason that feels the most true and the most like enduring is because I think that transphobia is deeply boring.
1: and welcome to The Reader's Heart, a podcast of conversations with authors and illustrators about children's literature as a vehicle for empathy and joy in a dark world. The Reader's Heart is rooted in the belief that our world needs the magic of children's literature now more than ever. So let's get started. This week, my guest is Kyle Lukoff. Kyle writes books for kids and for other people, too. His books have won numerous awards, including the Charlotte Huck and Stonewall Awards for When Aiden Became a Brother. His middle grade debut, Too Bright to See, a book of my heart, by the way, was a Newbery honoree, a Stonewall Award winner, and was named a finalist for the National Book Award. His numerous other books include Awake Asleep, Different Kinds of Fruit, If You're a Kid Like Gavin, Mermaid Days, and the Max and Friends series. Kyle is one of my favorite humans writing books for young people today, and I am delighted for you to hear our conversation. That said, be sure to stay tuned after the episode for information about how to connect with Kyle, as well as a discount code for purchasing Kyle's books from our friends at Bookalicious. Hi, Kyle. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you for having me. I forgot to ask if you prefer Jen or Jennifer or something else entirely.
1: I will respond to either, but my friends call me Jen, so please call me Jen. Good to know. Yay. What about you? Is Kyle okay? Or would you like me to call you Mr. Lukoff?
0: Well, I do not (laughs) want you to call me Mr. Lukoff.
1: (laughs) Well, that's good. That's good to know. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. I've been such a fan of your work for such a long time. And when uh, the idea of starting a podcast, even you know, crossed my mind, you were among the first people I hoped to be able to chat with. So thank you again for giving us your time.
0: Thank you for thinking of me.
1: Well, I like to start these conversations since the podcast is called The Reader's Heart, and I'm really sort of in a nerdy way fascinated um, by the ways that KidLit can help to expand and shape a reader's heart to inform who they become and how they walk through the world. I love to start these conversations by talking about your reader's heart. So I wonder if you might just share a little bit about who you are as a reader. And that might include how you became a reader or how you're a reader now, or just your reading journey in any way you feel comfortable sharing it. I think I have to just give you the briefest of
0: answers because (laughs) my entire life is books. And I've, and reading is my only hobby and the only thing that I like to do and the only thing that I arrange my life around. Ah. So I could talk to you for like three hours about how I see myself as a reader, but I don't even have a good answer to it. I don't remember when I started to become such a voracious reader and I don't even know why I like to read so much. It is just, what I do it is just built into who I am as a person I'm always in the middle of one book or another I have like 10 books from the public library on my shelf right now that I need to read and then I think four books that are not from the library that I still have to read um I just don't know who I would be without reading so much so that I don't have an answer for it. like you might as well ask like Why do you, why does your heart beat? I'm like, I don't know, because it, because it, (laughs) that's its job.
1: Oh, I love that so, so much. And I imagine that has to inform and influence how you write too.
0: One way that it definitely influences how I write is that I'm constantly paranoid of plagiarizing someone because I've read so much and because so many books have just wormed their way into my deep subconscious. Sometimes I will write a sentence that I think is fantastic, and then I will Google it to check to see if I accidentally and unconsciously stole it from somewhere. Um, Did you know that when she was young, Helen Keller got in a tremendous amount of trouble for plagiarism?
1: No. Tell me about that. We wrote, and I believe it. I
0: might be getting some of the specific details wrong, but she wrote and then published a short story that later it was revealed was heavily borrowed from a story that someone must have like read to her when she was very young, possibly read to her like before she became deaf, but also possibly something that her teacher had like signed to her that, you know, just became part of how she understood the world. And yeah. so when she wrote the story, she didn't realize that she was copying something. And it was devastating for her to realize that. Um And that also, like reading that affected me because I could absolutely see myself doing that. Um, So like, I definitely get inspiration from other authors. I definitely am inspired by authors that I want, that I, that I am, you know, intimidated by their skill. But the main way that it affects me is my anxiety about accidentally copying from someone.
1: Oh my gosh. I I can't imagine. It doesn't happen very often, right? Where you Google that line and you realize somebody else. Oh, no, no.
0: I've never, I have never, I've never Googled a line and found that it was someone else's. Yeah. Um, Luckily, because that would just make my anxiety even worse. Um, But I still look, I, I don't look all the time. Like I'm not running my entire novels through some machine to make sure that they're not stolen. But every so often, I will just just confirm that I'm that I am original.
1: Well, that makes me curious about um, other authors that I've had the chance to talk to here. Talk about their critique groups. You know, people that they might share their work with. I'm just curious: is that a process you go through, or do you hold it tightly, you know, to your chest until you share it with your editor or you know the the folks at your publisher? I pretty
0: much hold on to it until I share it with. Either my agent, if she's the first person to look at it, or my editor. Um, Mm. I will only start to share it with a small group of trusted friends once it's closer to done. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with this feeling of embarrassment about showing it to anyone. About showing something unfinished to someone that I consider like a friend or a peer. Um, my editor is more like, like my editor is more like my doctor, right? Like, I don't normally go around like telling my friends about like the consistency of my mucus or like my, you know, bowel movement. But I will explain that to my doctor because it's their job to know that, and it's their job to not think that I'm like gross or weird for telling them about that. And right. that's really how I feel about early work, like sharing it with my agent or my editor can be very embarrassing. But it's their job to look at my like raw output and shape it into something better.
1: Well, I don't think I'll ever, ever be able to think of first drafts now without also thinking about mucus and bowel movements. So thank you for that. But, you know, as you were talking, as someone who counts herself as the biggest fan of RuPaul's Drag Race ever, um, I couldn't help but think about this idea of that inner saboteur or that like imposter syndrome that a lot of us get. Even, for, you know, when you're talking about sharing your early work with someone who clearly trusts you, who's si- who believes in your talent, who has signed on to be that person for you, it's almost a little gratifying for a layperson to know that you get nervous about that too.
0: At this point, I wouldn't say that I'm nervous, um, but I definitely still feel a lot of embarrassment once I rework something and I improve it and then I'm embarrassed by what I originally thought was a good idea. Like with the novel that I have coming out, next year i went through so many different iterations and there yeah. was this one major scene about a third of the way through that i kept writing and then rewriting and then reimagining and then reconfiguring and every iteration was very embarrassing and finally i just took that entire moment out and replaced it with something completely unrelated and then it worked and then it became much better but i still think about those earlier scenes and cringe at the writer who thought that was a good idea, even though that writer is me.
1: I get so gratified hearing stories like that as a former English teacher, because I think sometimes for young readers, they just have this expectation that, you know, an author sits down and whatever they type out as the first draft is what the book or whatever the product, what it looks like. And of course, it goes through all of these different iterations and some pieces get tossed out completely. I feel like that's such a good lesson for readers to hear.
0: Yeah, I I often talk to groups of students where their teachers want me to remind them that even, you know, famous and successful authors like myself need to revise and we need people to tell us what we can do better and we delete a lot. And that's always been funny to me because, of course, of course you need to fix things. Maybe it's because I've never identified as a perfectionist. I've never ever thought of myself as someone who could get something right the first time. So maybe it's like a healthy amount of low self-esteem has helped me disabuse myself of that notion immediately.
1: But you're also, do I remember correctly that you're also, you have a linguistics background? Um,
0: no. I'm a nerd, but... I was a history major in college.
1: That's, oh. So. I, but I do you have written books in the past that are like poetry, books of poetry that are about words? Is that what I'm remembering here? Or is this yeah. something I'm going to have to cut out because I've completely lost the plot?
0: You're probably thinking of Explosion at the Poem Factory.
1: That's it. And, yeah. and the reason I'm going – the reason why my mind went there is because I think – you know, someone like you who ha- whose mind works in that way and has an understanding of how words work, et cetera. I mean, I would think that revision would just be a natural part of that process just because of your background and understanding.
0: Yeah, I love revisions because it really does feel like taking something that is relatively raw and shaping it into something that is more precisely what I want it to be. And I find that to be a very satisfying process.
1: Yeah. And in in these days, too, I mean, this is a good transition because... Um I'm so one of the reasons I wanted to have you as a guest for this little podcast is because I feel like the time that we're living in right now the books that you write and that kidlit authors write in general are so important right now and I wonder if there feels like there's an extra weight to getting it right, which I'm putting in air quotes right now, or if you're thinking about the context of the time we're living in as you craft books for young people.
0: I think it's impossible to not think of the context in which you are living in when you are writing, but I try not to think of my books as anything other than a story that I want to tell. Because I think that if I think too much about what it is, you know, trying to say in this moment, I worry that what I'll end up with is a manifesto or a piece of propaganda Mm. instead of a piece of literature. So I always try to keep story and question and answer as the core of what I'm trying to accomplish rather than writing something with the intent of it having a specific impact In the time in which we are living, because ideally work is somewhat immortal, like work can stand the test of time. And if I try too hard to write something about, if I try too hard to create something specifically about when we are living now, I think I am sacrificing its potential to speak to people in different contexts.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you don't want it to be too heavy-handed or anything like that to feel like you're trying to teach something rather than just allowing the reader to get what they will from it. Exactly. Well, one of the things that I consistently get from your books and that I think is, uh, I don't want to say entirely unique, but in some ways unique to your writing is The way that so many of your stories create a safe space for readers and the thing I think about most when I say that is in Too Bright to See, which by the way is a book of my heart. I've read it over and over and over again and will share it with anyone who will stop long enough to listen to me book talk Mm -hmm. it for the 800th time. Um, But one of the things I admired so greatly about that book and others is that While the characters in Too Bright to See, and we can talk a little bit about what that book is about in a second for maybe listeners who haven't read it, um, is that while the characters know that things like homophobia and transphobia and racism exist in the world, those things aren't part of their world. Like They are protected, the adults in their life, whether it's their parents or their relatives or friends or even people at school they do the right things as opposed to being examples of how adult behavior can harm young people. And I love that about that book and just about your books in general. And I just wonder if you might speak to that as a choice for that book and anything else you want to talk about.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think listeners might also be able to find Discussions that I've had on this topic in the past Mm -hmm. where I've given different answers. And I don't think that that's bad or disingenuous. I think it means that my own thinking about my work has been changing and evolving over the last, you know, five to seven years. Sure. There's a lot of reasons why I made the choice to not make transphobia part of the characters' journeys and to write to see. But right now, the reason that feels the most true and the most like enduring is because I think that transphobia is deeply boring. There is nothing in there that I find interesting. There is nothing there for me to engage with. There is nothing there that is like intellectually rigorous or philosophically fascinating. It is dull, it is repetitive, it is a regurgitation. Of decades of the same old inaccurate fear mongering tactics with like the same goal in mind of like general cultural homogeneity. And I don't feel like talking about it. It's boring. There's nothing there for me. There's nothing there for me. So why would I include Mm -hmm. it?
1: Well, I love, I feel like that's a mic drop answer right there. I love that. I think maybe we need some bumper stickers that say transphobia is boring. Um, boring. It is. I love that. I think that's a perfect way to frame it. And at the same time, I understand why some authors and illustrators want to show the harm that comes from that. Because some readers may not experience that in within arm's length in their own world. You know, like they might not know what it looks like, what that harm looks like in their own world, because they might not think that they know someone from that community. And so they may not know. I I understand why authors Try to show what that looks like. But the thing I appreciate so much in your work is that you show an example of what it's supposed, like what the world's supposed to look like, as opposed to maybe what it does.
0: Yeah. What I tried to do was to create something that is possible in the hopes that people might read it and think, oh, I could do that. Yeah. Like, oh, I guess there's no reason to make someone's life harder than it has to be. Yeah. I guess that's a choice I can make.
1: I feel like it's super empowering and also gives us a chance to switch to another topic I really wanted to chat about today, and that's vegetables. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a real big fan, of course, of your other middle grade book, uh, Different Kinds of Fruit. Um, but I know you have a picture book like sort of on a similar theme. And I just wondered if you might talk a little bit about uh, how that theme is, affects or is, woven through both of those books to whatever degree you can talk about your upcoming work.
0: Yeah. So the book that you're referring to is called There's No Such Thing as Vegetables. It comes out February 27th, illustrated by the incredible Andrea Tsurumi. And the reason for that book is actually very silly. It is because I had originally wanted the title of different kinds of fruit to be no such thing as vegetables, because there's a conversation that the main character Annabelle has with her new friend Bailey, where Bailey is explaining that vegetable is a social construct that has nothing like to do botanically with like the parts of plants that we eat. Um, and it spun out into like sort of a bigger conversation about like how gender is also a social construct, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, my editor said that the team over there thought that no such thing as vegetables sounded too much like a picture book, and they wanted us to choose a title that felt more like a middle grade novel. So I was very grumpy about that. But <laughs> finally we settled on different kinds of fruit, which I very much love, and I think it's a much better title for that book. And then a couple years ago, I had this brainstorm of like, oh, I'm just gonna write a picture book and call it No such thing as Vegetables" because they told me to. Uh, so I did. Um, this is a much much more heavy-handed than the metaphor in different kinds of fruit it's where it's just like this kid named chester who goes to the community garden and is looking for some vegetables and then a bunch of vegetables start yelling at him and being like why are you calling me that i'm not a vegetable stop it they all have a lot Uh of
1: things
0: about themselves
1: I cannot wait to get my hands on it. It sounds so fun and wonderful. I will tell you that um, uh, my book club. I I belong to an online book club with some friends. We started it during quarantine and and the beginning those first few years of the pandemic where we were all separated from one another. And so we started a an uh, what we called the quarantine book club. And we've just kept continued to do it. And we read. Um, different kinds of fruit d- during those that that time period and the texts with screenshots from that conversation between Annabelle and Bailey uh, in my book club were amazing. We were all like, have you gotten to this part yet? You can you believe this we all suddenly wanted to become fruit vegetable experts, etc. And I have to believe that kids will feel the same way, uh especially younger ones when they get a hold of this picture book.
0: You know, when people people often ask if I write the books that I wish I could have read as a young person. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is yes. But the books that I'm talking about are Explosion at the Poem Factory and No Such Thing as Vegetables. Those are the books that I would have been obsessed with as a little. Yes. Time because those are the same interests that I've had the whole
1: time. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like it, it's just like such an accessible way to have conversations with kids that are really important, but without like necessarily uh, engaging them in, in topics that may just for depending on their age, feel complicated for them to understand, you know, like vegetables, all kids understand vegetables and fruits and that kind of stuff. Maybe w- the, where they haven't don't ha- haven't developed the language for those other conversations yet.
0: Uh, no such thing as vegetables also spends a couple pages on other things that are fake, like money. And borders oh, yeah. and language. And then it, it doesn't get too intense about that, but there is an author's note where I explain a little bit more about how social constructs are real, but they are mm-hmm. also invented.
1: Well, and they, they change as a result of that. You know, like mm-hmm. our understanding of these things changes as our values change, as our experiences change. A thing about a construct is that it can be deconstructed.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's exciting, Kyle. I'm real excited to see that book. I can't wait for it to come out. So um, for our listeners, you said it was the end of February. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it comes out February
1: 27th. Oh, that's amazing. What else are you working on? Can you tell us anything else you're working on or is it still top secret?
0: Um, let's see. What can I tell you about? I have two more picture books coming out later this year. There's Mm -hmm. one called Just What to Do, which is all the different ways that you might need to support someone going through a hard time. Uh, And then there's one coming out, I think after that, I don't know the exact dates, but it is called I'm Sorry You Got Mad.
1: Oh, so one of those apology
0: type Mm -hmm. things that aren't really
1: apologies is Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing.
0: It's a picture (laughs) book told in the form of apology notes from one kid to another as he tries and tries and tries and tries to get it right.
1: Oh, that sounds so sweet. I mean, I think my heart just grew three sizes listening to you describe that in that one sentence.
0: He is a very angry little boy for most of it, which which was a lot of fun to write. Um, I have other picture books that I'm working on that are will be out within the next couple years. And I cannot tell you anything about it on the record right now. But once you stop recording, I can tell you more about it. But February 1st is when I'm going to start working on my fourth novel.
1: Yay. Oh, okay. Well, I can't wait. This is just like a teaser for listeners. Ha ha. I will get some tea after this, even though you won't. Yet. Yet. They will get it eventually, right? my,
0: My third novel also comes out in about a year. It's my first action adventure fantasy situation and also my first book centering a Jewish main character.
1: Wow, this is all so exciting. I feel like 2024 is like the year of Kyle Lukoff.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll see. That means that no other year will be and that makes me anxious.
1: Okay, well then one of many years of (laughs) Kyle Lukoff is what we'll say. (laughs) We're in our Lukoff era. How about we pull a Taylor Swift and say we're in our Lukoff era?
0: (laughs) But then I feel like a horrible narcissist. So I don't know. We'll see.
1: Let me say it for you, then. I'll just be your publicist. You don't have to do it. I love that. I love it. And all those books sound important and necessary right now. You know, it's like I, I feel like we're just having a conversation, like two friends over a cup of coffee. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't try to dive in just a little bit while I have you for a minute or two about the important empathy work that children's literature does. We were talking about this before we hit record about how, you know, the time we're living in right now feels like something that historians, people living long after us will study and try to learn from. Um, And it's my hope, my belief, my fervent belief that children's literature will be one of the, you know, buoys that future generations see us clinging to, to find our way out of all of this. And, and that has a lot to do with how Kidlet fuels empathy. And it feels like a lot of the books you've got coming out, along with all those you've already been a part of, um, really do that heavy lifting in what seems like an effortless way, but I know it can't possibly be effortless.
0: You know, I don't really know. I have so many responses to that ranging from like snarky to sincere that I don't even know where to begin. Um, You
1: can give me both. I'm tough. So no
0: worries. Uh, One is that, you know, I I was a history major and I'm still fascinated by history. And of course, we know that there are scholars who study every year that we've ever had, like, you know, the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, all of those will be rich veins to study um sure i also kind of hope that children's literature doesn't turn out to be this like buoy of like hope in the future because i hope that what we end up with is like robust social services and public policy that actually materially make people's Mm -hmm. lives instead of just like stories that some people can't afford um but that's like the cynic in me um yeah you know, I heard, I can't tell you who, because that would be very unkind, but I was chatting with a librarian friend of mine who was telling me that this one beloved children's book author of days past was known for not being the nicest person in real life. And the way my friend phrased it was, quote, this person puts all of her sweetness into her books, mm. and, which was the most diplomatic way.
1: Yes. Just,
0: and I sometimes feel like there's an element of truth in that with me too. I actually don't have the the concept of empathy doesn't actually hold a lot of interest for me. And yet I also know that it is deeply present in all of my books. Mm-hmm. And so what is possible is that my sort of like subconscious or unconscious like yearning for understanding Gets poured out into my literature in a way that I am not able to access it in my like day to day intellectual processes. Um, Who knows? I don't know. I'm not a therapist. I could talk to my therapist about that tomorrow. Um, (laughs) And then another, but another possible answer is that, you know, when I was a school librarian, I would often have teachers or parents say to me, What's a good book to teach my kid empathy? And the answer that I consistently gave them is literally any book, because any book, by virtue of it being a book, is not about you. It is about someone else, and it is about something else. And so there will always be a moment where you can stop and say, oh, why do you think that character did that? What do you think that felt like? Have you ever done something like that? What would it feel like if something like that happened to you? And that could be about anything. And so while I guess you could say that my books can be seen as exercises in empathy, I think that you could say that about literally any piece of fiction and probably most pieces of nonfiction as well. I think that that is just one of the innate qualities of engaging with stories that are not your own, which could be reading, it could be an oral storytelling tradition, it could be watching TV, it could be listening to a podcast. I think that engaging with anything outside of your own experience has the potential to engender empathy because it is fundamentally not about you.
1: I, I feel like this conversation, My, I mentioned my, my heart is growing three sizes, but I feel my brain is as well because- <laughs> I mean, the way that you're approaching this topic to me feels important. It feels uh, necessary as part of this conversation because one of the things I'm thinking about as you're speaking is maybe the the weight or the responsibility that we're somehow putting on authors and illustrators' shoulders right now to somehow, you know, create our way out of this mess when, in reality, That, as you say, that's really the responsibility of our uh, public policy and the people that we elect to represent us.
0: Maybe someday we will have some elected official who will say, you know, the reason behind my, you know, Green New Deal socialist agenda was a Kaya Lukoff book. Uh, That would be neat. But some people were probably subconsciously affected by if you give a mouse a cookie which is about what happens if you let those people into our house. If you give them an inch, they will take a mile and they'll never stop taking from you. Um, I love that book as a kid. And then my friend said that it was about Reaganomics and I got very upset.
1: I have never heard that, that it's about Reaganomics, but my goodness, is it about Reaganomics? I mean, now that you are mentioning that, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, you give these people anything and they'll just keep taking from you.
1: This is the perfect conversation for us to have around this and for us to continue thinking about because what that just means is that, you know, as we think about, because you mentioned being a children's librarian, I was a school librarian for many years. I can guarantee you the people listening to this podcast, a lot of them will be school and public librarians who I think have the best job in the world in the sense that a huge part of it is finding the right book for the right reader at the right moment and being able to, you know, wave your nerdy reader flag every day um, and share your reading life. And I think this conversation is a great way to inform that work, um, to help those people listening think about the, the work that they do. And how important it is so that we give kids books other than to, you know, if you give a mouse a cookie.
0: I hope that Laura Numeroff doesn't hear this. So because I really did love that book as a little kid, and I'm sure that it wasn't. Me too. Author. You
1: know, I – um what ta- when that book first came out i was teaching or at least the, when i first became aware of it i was teaching preschool at the time and i bet i read that book 10,000 times to to my preschool readers and they loved it and i did too so you're right because let's circle it back to what you said earlier ultimately you know this the book is about as much about if not more what you bring to it than what the author or illustrator put into it
0: Yeah, I just wanted a little mouse friend. I would have happily given to my mouse friend whatever he wanted.
1: Kyle, is there anything I haven't asked you that you wish I had? I'd like to end these conversations with that question.
0: This is not something that I wish you would ask me, but one more thing about the fruit and vegetable conversation is that there is a very brief moment in Too Bright to See where that topic also comes up. I don't know if you remember it, but it's a bit where Bug is saying that like... That there was a fight with Moira about whether or not tomatoes belonged in a vegetable garden. And that is based on a real fight that I had with this girl that I was required to be friends with as a young person. So this is a theme that has been part of my life for a very long time.
1: I love it. Maybe, you know, years from now, we'll be able to have the Kyle Lukoff, like, fruit and vegetable collection, where it's all <laughs> the books that have that running theme in it. Well, there'll be a whole canon.
0: Yeah, Maybe.
1: Ah, we can hope. I love it. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Me too. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for tuning into The Reader's Heart. More information about this episode, including ways to connect with Kyle, as well as a discount code for purchasing his books through Bookalicious are available at librarygirl.net. This podcast was created, written, and recorded by me, Jennifer Lagarde, all rights reserved. Our theme music was created by Comma Media and is available for free at Pixabay's royalty-free music repository. And the beautiful logo for our show was created by Karina Lukin. If you enjoyed our show, please leave us a five-star review at wherever you listen to podcasts. Believe it or not, this small step makes a big difference in helping the reader's heart find its audience. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time. And until then, happy reading, y'all.